Hello, it's Monday, the 26th of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Suspected North Korean drones across the inter-Korean border prompting South Korea to launch warplanes in response. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Japan recently adopted a new national security strategy, including plans to develop a counter-strike capability. We'll discuss the implications for the region for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we look back at the year in sports for Korea, from the Beijing Winter Olympics to the Qatar World Cup. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Suspected North Korean drones across the inter-Korean border Monday, this prompted the deployment of fighter jets, choppers and other assets to attempt to shoot them down. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello, good to be here. So North Korea's drone operations have been a source of growing security concerns. Uh, they can be used for spy operations as well as potential attack missions against Seoul, of course. And all this, of course, comes as the regime continues to carry out provocative acts. So can you tell us what we know so far? Well, first of all, the JCS responded by, of course, holding a press conference and revealing what they have so far. And, of course, we will hear more about the possible uh, response actions from the South Korean side following this uh, unusual provocation. We haven't had this in in a while, at least not in this decade. Uh, The South Korean military detected multiple unidentified objects presumed to be unmanned aerial vehicles in border areas of Gyeonggi-do province from 10.25 a.m., so that's early today. According to multiple government sources, some of the drones even flew over civilian residential areas of Paju and approached the skies of Seoul. The military reportedly said the drones were identifiable even with the naked eye, and with their size similar to that of the North Korean drones from 2014. We do not have the exact specification of the models yet, but uh, although reportedly North Korea has been focusing on making improvements and producing more of these, uh, because they were so seemed far uh, outdated when we first detected them in even in 2014 mm. we we it's hard to believe that they may have made some drastic upgrades mm. the south blared warning broadcasts and sent attack helicopters and other warplanes to shoot them down but uh, unfortunately it wasn't successful so far uh, it's confirmed it's it's unconfirmed whether these drones carry any weapons. The military also deployed a KA-1 light attack aircraft, but for some reason it crashed in uh, Hengsan County at 11.39 a.m. Pilots escaped safely. There are reports of uh, something going on during takeoff, even before the chase could have begun. The drones seem to fly in various patterns reportedly, including even making U-turns and evading radar during certain maneuvers. Again, uh, something to do with the... Uh, the inability for South Korean military to respond efficiently is possibly because these uh, machines are not the most advanced ones out there. The sure. latest violation follows the North's firing of the two short-range ballistic missiles on Friday. So this is a continuation of North Korea uh, trying to send a message or trying to carry out certain um, acts to uh, draw response from South Korea. Sure, it's certainly an Concerning escalation, as we said, it's not been seen in uh, several years, the sort of uh, drone incursion into South Korean airspace. Uh, Meanwhile, a North Korean hacker group was found to have attempted to hack some 900 South Korean experts on foreign affairs and security. They tried to do this by impersonating legitimate organizations via email. 
Right. As far-fetched as this may sound, this is really happening, and it sometimes works. According to the National Police Agency on Sunday, the group sent phishing emails in April under the names of reporters covering the Presidential Transition Committee, as well as a secretary of North Korean-born and South Korean lawmaker, Taeyong Ho, back in May. The group posed as the Korea National Diplomatic Academy when sending such emails in October. At least 892 targets received these uh, scam emails. Police estimate 49 recipients logged into the phishing websites. Most were researchers at private organizations or college professors. No intel on foreign affairs or security were leaked, reportedly. In the successful hacking attempts, the North Korean group distributed ransomware that locks up data or computer networks in the past, and it can only be unlocked by the perpetrator in exchange for a ransom, thus the word ransomware. Hmm. Uh, the hacking group demanded bitcoins. The first time a North Korean hacking operation included demand for money. The prime suspect is Kim Suki, according to police, the group that led the 2014 hacking of the Korea Hydro and Nuclear Power Company. Okay, moving away from North Korea related headlines now. The Justice Ministry's Presidential Pardon Review Committee held a meeting last week and reportedly decided to include former President Lee Myung-bak and former South Gyeongsang Province Governor Kim Byung-soo in the list of presidential pardons. I understand there have been strong responses uh, coming from lawmakers. That's right. This is not even finalized nor confirmed, but we are thinking that this is close to the final version. Tensions have heightened between rival political parties over the Justice Ministry's list of candidates for year-end pardons had to be finalized this week. Uh, likely to make the cut, of course, is former President Lee Myung-bak. Uh, his 17-year prison sentence for corruption was suspended due to health reasons. A former South Gyeongsang Province Governor Kim Byung-soo, a close aide to former President Moon Jae-in, he was sentenced to two years in prison last July on charges of manipulating online opinions in favor of Moon Jae-in ahead of the 2017 presidential election. His prison term is set to end next May, but he will be released without reinstatement if he gets the uh, pardon, meaning he can't run for office until 2028. So the ex-governor does not want to be released on parole, according to him, simply to balance out Yoon's possible pardon on former President Yi. The DP called for a withdrawal of pardons that are unfair and impede public unity. The ruling People Power Party called the opposition's demand to grant Kim reinstatement absurd. The review panel will report the list to the Justice Minister. The President will finalize the pardons in a cabinet meeting on Tuesday before they are enacted on Wednesday. On to the latest now in the investigations on the Itaewon crowd crush. Two former senior police officers of Seoul's Yongsan district have been detained. Uh, the Seoul Western District Court issued an arrest warrant for Yi Jae, the former head of the Yongsan police station, and Son Byung-ju, former chief of the station's 112 emergency hotline situation room, on charges of professional negligence resulting in death or injury. Yeah, that's right, Jango. Their arrests come 18 days after the first warrant request was dismissed, and the court said there's considerable reason to believe the suspects committed the crimes stated in the warrant based on additional evidence gathered and cited at the risk of evidence destruction. He is accused of not taking specific measures after receiving an order from the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency to thoroughly prepare for the Halloween celebrations. A newly added charge is fabricating official documents for allegedly approving a report that falsified his arrival time at the scene. A song is accused of failing to take proper safety measures despite emergency calls about the overcrowding. The next step, investigators could target higher-ranking officials in the police force. A court deliberation for a warrant requested for Yongsan District Office head Park Young and others take place on Monday as well. Her arrest will likely be determined as early as Monday night. She is accused of attempting to destroy evidence by replacing her phones. 
Meanwhile, the main opposition Democratic Party's chairman, Lee Jae-myung, said on Monday that it will be difficult for him to appear for prosecution's questioning that's scheduled for Wednesday, citing scheduled events and a parliamentary plenary session as the main reasons why. So can you uh, tell us a bit more about this situation? Well, he made the remarks at the National Assembly, told reporters he would discuss the prosecution via uh, his lawyers on possible dates and ways to proceed with the investigation. Last Thursday, the prosecution summoned for questioning over allegations of accepting donations for 16 million won through Sangnam FC in return for administrative favors while being a de facto owner of the football club as mayor of the city in the 2010s. While claiming to have been cleared of the allegations with the related case closed, he said he would comply with the investigation by the prosecution. He appears to have hinted that he would not accept the summons right away, but may do so later after coordinating schedules with the prosecution. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Earlier this month, Japan adopted a new national security strategy. This included a controversial decision to acquire a counter-strike capability to preempt enemy attacks. It also decided to double its defence and military spending to gain a more offensive footing and improve resilience to protect itself in the face of risks from China, North Korea and Russia. This marked another significant shift away from its post-war pacifist policy, to discuss the far-reaching ramifications of Japan's new strategy, we have two guests joining us on the line now. First, we have journalist Peter Landers, who is the Tokyo Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Landers, hello and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us on the phone is Professor Imin Jung from Gongju National University, a renowned expert on South Korea-Japan relations. Professor Im, thank you for your time today as well. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Mr. Landers, let me start with you. We understand that the Japanese government approved three key defence and security documents, including a new national security strategy declaring plans to secure a quote-unquote counter-strike capability. Can you explain first for us in more detail what the security documents uh, were that Japan adopted and what they do? What does it mean to possess a counter-strike capability exactly? That is a, a closely watched phrase, and it goes even beyond, I would say, purely sort of uh, counter-strikes. I mean, the word counter-strike implies that the, the other side strikes first and, and perhaps sends a missile. Maybe North Korea fires a missile that lands on Japanese territory, and then uh, certainly the new uh, the guidelines adopted by Japan, the new policy adopted by Japan would say that in a case like that, uh, Japan can fire a missile back at North Korea uh, and perhaps try to hit the, the missile base that fired the, their missile. Uh, but even uh, before that uh, kind of scenario, perhaps uh, Japan senses that uh, North Korea or China or any other adversary is preparing a strike or is working on, about to strike. And you, you can imagine perhaps a, a missile being sort of loaded into its a silo uh, uh, to be fired, that even in that scenario before, 
uh, Japan has actually been struck by uh, any sort of enemy attack, that Japan could uh, strike that uh, uh, country's territory. So mm. this is a, a, a big advance beyond what Japan previously allowed itself to do. Right, so a big advance. So this move is being considered controversial as it moves the nation away from its, uh, as you said, exclusively uh, self-defence policy that followed the end of the World War II. Professor Im, would the move then to possess this uh, so-called counter-strike capability be considered an end to the uh, 1956 government policy that shelved the capability to strike enemy targets? Uh, This refers to Article 9 of Japan's uh, War announcing constitution. Can you tell us a little bit more about this article as well and what it entails? Yes, sure. Um, probably we need to go back to the original sentence um, to clarify all those, um, you know, confusing situations. So according to the Article 9 and 1, again, the, um, I'm going to omit the first half of the uh, sentence, but the Japanese quote again, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as means of uh, settling international disputes. So this is the uh, original sentence of the Article 9. So I think, you know, Japanese um, or the Japan, Japan as a whole, as a whole nation, you know, they still probably will adhere to the principle of renouncing war as a sovereign right of the nation. I think this fundamental uh, probably principle can remain as is, but the, the problematic part will be probably the second half. Again, the threat or use of a force as means of uh, settling international disputes. So this part can be uh, contradictory um, or conflicting, logically conflicting, uh, with the, uh, this new decision. You know, of course, um, they keep saying that, again, the Japanese government keeps saying that, you know, they will um, um, adhere to uh, the fundamental principle of the uh, exclusively self-defense policy, but at the same time, um, they are trying to suggest a uh, possibility uh, of making a preemptive attack if it's necessary. So again, the whole um, this, you know, government's explanation um, cannot be logically coherent. So this is why uh, I think uh, even within the Japanese society, um, many other critics will um, say that, you know, this new decision um, is again uh, paradoxical or mm. it creates some logical loophole. So that's uh, uh, probably, um, again, uh, the probably the most um, difficult part to interpret. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, Mr. L- Mr. Landers, uh, where does this leave the war-announcing constitution of uh, Japan, and is it still an important element then in the Northeast Asian geopolitics? It is, and I think Professor M really pointed out some of the contradictions there. I mean, even uh, the Constitution, if you read it literally, seems to say that Japan cannot have any military forces at all. And that hasn't been the case uh, since the early 1950s. And ultimately, I think Japan would argue that you know, even beyond the language of any constitution or legal document, that there's a sort of fundamental human right, uh, you might say, or a, a right that a country has to defend itself, and that that, uh, in a sense, supersedes a, a, any uh, interpretation of language in a, in a written constitution. Um, 
I remember, I think it was, these are not the exact words perhaps, but our President Lincoln in the United States during the Civil War said the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And I think in Japan, the government has used similar language in the, in the past to say that, you know, if an attack on Japan is imminent, uh, then there is no law that, that can prevent Japan from defending itself, that the right of self-defense supersedes any of that. And so, uh, but it, it is extremely awkward given the language of the Constitution that the professor just mentioned. Mm. Professor Im, uh, mm-hmm. same question essentially. Uh, where does this leave the Constitution of Japan? And how do you think this uh, development affects the security balance in the region? Well, um, when Japan was the number two, uh, again, by its economic size, you know, if, if that kind of very pragmatic approach for the national interest, I think it um, uh, was pretty much inspirational to its neighboring countries, including Korea or even China. You know, um, Japan prioritized economic prosperity um, than the, uh, those, you know, military capability, uh, which is so-called the Yoshida Doctrine. Right? So it's a pretty much mercantilistic way and pragmatic approach. So it did work, and it became, Japan uh, became the number two economy after, just after the, uh, the United States. But ever since, again, the China became the number two. And China also is trying to use its um, economic uh, wealth, those um, resources, to modernize its military capability uh, or to strengthen its military capability. So the number three, Japan, again, now interprets um, that kind of, you know, China's uh, modernization or expansion of its military capability. Um, Japan interprets that as, uh, again, the totally new challenge, right? So as long as um, Japan is economically um, um, after the China, and um, as long as Japan is, um, you know, weaker uh, than China by military capability too, I mean, it probably the, the the whole society is really concerned about the problem, the future of the uh, of the country. Um, so that is why I think that they um, changed the, all this, you know, interpretation or the national approach mm. uh, to its, its military policy. But well. Um, um, your question was again: Does it um, it going uh, it going to change the balance, right, in the region? Um, I, I think it can be um, because, of course, Japan will say that we are just reactive. Um, but you know, we probably need to um, recall the uh, the famous professor Mirshima, um his uh, theory, offensive realism. Probably the others will interpret that um, as the offensive. Um, um, action rather than just reactive action. So this is the really um, kind of problem, again, the between, uh, between the regional countries. Uh, Mr. Landers, can you also tell us how Japan is planning to beef up its uh, military capabilities to gain its uh, counter-strike capability? A big part of this is development of long-range missiles, both uh, homegrown and purchasing from the United States. Uh, Japan has what they call a Type 12 missile that had that they already possess with a shorter range, and they're uh, planning to extend the range of that so they could fire it, fire it, I think, from Japanese territory and maybe even hit a target in uh, in North Korea or in China, depending on where that is. 
and they're spending billions of dollars to purchase and deploy U.S. Tomahawk missiles, which are nothing new. They were used even in the in the Gulf War three decades ago by the U.S. military, uh, but U.S. has not uh, sold these to many other countries. I think at the moment the U.K. is the only one outside of the U.S. deploying them, and now Japan is is talking to the U.S. about. Uh, purchasing these Tomahawk missiles, which also uh, could be used uh, to mid, for mid to long range uh, strikes on other countries' territories. Right. And I understand that Japan aims to double its defense spending to about 2% of its GDP to a total of about 43 trillion yen. That's about 320 billion US dollars through uh, 2027. And the annual budget, I believe, will be the third biggest after the US and China in defence spending. Uh, Critics of these changes have said that the defence budget spending is excessive, asking does Japan really need to have the world's third biggest spending for defence? Mr Landers, what do you make of such comments? Well, China is number two, but it's uh, it's way you know even if japan goes up to equivalent of let's say 80 billion dollars a year that would still be i think roughly a third of what china is spending and of course the us spends much much more than that um but uh, but there is a big chinese build up that japan is responding to and putting aside the, some of the legal language and the contradictions in the contradict in the constitution that we spoke about earlier um, i mean i think in in real terms or in real politic terms for japan the the, the issue is uh, less North Korea, which is now downgraded to the number two uh, threat in the latest documents, and the number one threat is, in fact, China, uh, and uh, you know, military that just vastly outweighs uh, Japan, at least in terms of number of aircraft carriers, number of fighter jets, uh, number of, of ships. Uh, it's just just much bigger, and so the 80 billion uh, a year, even if they get to that uh, level of defense spending, will uh, not allow allow them to to match China in any way, but it might allow them to pose a greater deterrent uh, to Chinese adventurism. Uh, Professor Im, also Japan also, of course, has a U.S. military power behind it, and that's where uh, the Japanese used to uh, lean on in the past to uh, strike back at any potential enemies, and the self-defense forces of Japan so far had focused on shielding the country from enemy attacks on this way. Do you then perhaps find Japan's plan excessive? Is there a risk that this could spark an arms race in the region? Well, I think our arms race uh, already started, unfortunately, in this region. I will not say, I will not blame Japan um, as uh, the one who really started arms race. Uh, But in the reality, already, um, you know, the power restructuring is ongoing. And as long as, um, you know, both sides, the two sides, interpret the other side's action as an offensive action, you know, this arms race uh, probably will continue for a while, uh, which is a um, pretty um, big challenge again to South Korea as well. Of course, we we do face face the the, um, threat, military threat, nuclear threat by... um, made by the North Korea, uh, but at the same time, we don't want to, you know, turn the China and the Russia as a really dull enemy, uh, because we definitely need uh, uh, China's support to deal with the North Korea's nuclear issues and so on. 
Um, so um, if you know if it this Japan's this decision really triggers the um, next change, for example, the f- uh, fixation of uh, mm. the Cold War structure. If so, it's gonna be pretty pretty much unfortunate for everyone. So mm. hopefully, um, I hopefully. Um, I, I would like to suggest, you know, um, we can uh, find a more creative t- way to cooperate um, with the uh, other regional countries as well. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Landers, very briefly, can the Japanese government afford the plan? And what do the Japanese public think about the plan? In general, you see uh, polls, including some out in the last day or two, suggesting that uh, Japanese do agree with the acquisition of this counter-strike capability. They generally do uh, support a stronger defense. Uh, but there is some concern about uh, the, spend, the amount of spending and also about uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's plan for paying for the new spending. And he has proposed raising taxes, at least to, part, to cover part of the new spending. And even some in his ruling party say uh, that's not necessary. We, we could uh, simply issue government bonds to pay for that uh, spending. There's no need to charge uh, co- corporations or individuals more tax. Mm. Uh, Professor Im, shortly after Japan's announcement, a South Korean military official said that Japan must first secure South Korea's approval if the country plans to carry out an an attack against North Korea. This is apparently because the constitution defines the North as part of uh, South Korean territory, of course. Uh, Tokyo then responded to Seoul, saying that it will not seek Seoul's approval for a counterattack on North Korea. Uh, Seoul's presidential office said it is among the issues that can be discussed within the frame of trilateral security cooperation involving the U.S. Do you think Seoul, Washington and Tokyo will be able to uh, perhaps more effectively respond to North Korea and other threats if Japan gains counterattack capabilities? Is it necessary? Well, (laughs) I think um, uh, we, um, South Korea with the United States, I think... here, um, for uh, regarding the trilateral cooperation, if I say, um, definitely the Washington's role is enormous. Uh, without, of course, you know, uh, Washington, South Korea, uh, Japan, this bilateral relation um, really doesn't have a full enough trust mutually. Um, so definitely, I think uh, Washington's role is very much important. And if you ask me, if necessary, if if it is uh, whether or not uh, the Japan's that kind of capability is necessary or not, uh, it's a really difficult question to answer. But uh, again, um, I will keep emphasizing um, the role of Washington as a facilitator of the cooperation, and then and then. Um, and at the same time, probably Washington's role uh, should be also um, or can be um, a, a coordinator, too, um, among these three countries' um, different national interests. Mm. OK, and finally, Mr. Landers, the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida intends to visit the U.S. as soon as next month to discuss uh, Japan's plans for uh, defence build-up with uh, President Joe Biden, according to uh, Nikkei Asia. What is perhaps the eventual aim for the Japanese government? Where are they headed at and what is it that they're trying to achieve? I think it is uh, a stronger, as Professor Im uh, correctly pointed out, a stronger U.S.-Japan alliance and is, is key. And these new, uh, this new spending by the Japanese military, the new acquisition of long-range missiles, uh, none of that uh, is 
meaningful at all, except in the context of close U.S.-Japan cooperation in the event of a, you know, regional tensions or a regional uh, conflict. And so there's a constant need for Japanese prime ministers to go to Washington uh, to meet their counterpart. Uh, in this case, uh, President Biden uh, meeting Prime Minister Kishida uh, when President uh, Trump was president. Uh, then Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, was talking to President Trump all the time. They played golf uh, to build their relationship, so that's that's a key part of this. And I think, you know, as far as uh, South Korea is concerned, that you know, it, it is uh, an issue. To, that kind of three-way collaboration in the event of a of a regional conflict. Uh, I don't think Japan would strike North Korea without telling the U.S. about it, uh, and it's kind of, I guess, the U.S. position to to then tell South Korea about it. And if possible, uh, ideally, I think Washington would say, "Can we get the three of us in a room together and and all be deciding these things together?" But the Japan South Korea relationship is probably not uh, strong enough to to fully pursue that kind of effort just yet. Uh, but, Mr. Landers, in the long term, do you think uh, Japan will eventually have to scrap its uh, supposed anti-pacifist uh, constitution? That's a good question. And, and uh, you know, the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, uh, headed by Prime Minister Kishida, that has been the, the party's policy since it was founded in 1955, actually, that, that we need to revise the Constitution, and specifically Article 9 that Professor M read part of earlier. Uh, probably to permit this sort of uh, what they would describe as a self-defense policy uh, and make clear that Japan does have the right to possess weapons and and perhaps even to attack another country, but only in the context of pure self-defense. So, uh, however, it's just become the Constitution has never been changed. It's uh, Mm. reached uh, 75 years old this year, and so it's very difficult to change. I think more likely than the Constitution being changed or scrapped is that it just simply ceases to be relevant, uh, which is not a desirable situation fully either because you you want the Constitution to be governing what you do. Okay, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking to uh, Professor Iman Jung from Kongju National University and Peter Landers from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 3.45 points, or 0.15% on Monday, closing the day at 2,317.14. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 3.43 points, or 0.50%, to close the day at 694.68. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 6-1 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,274.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee to bring us those stories today. He's joined us in the studio now. Walter, hello. It's uh, good to see you. Hope you had a good Christmas. Yes, I hope you had a good Christmas as well, chang Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll talk about South Korea confirming its first case of a brain-eating umiba called Nagleria Faleri. Now, we'll also learn about a high school student who is being investigated by the police for driving an e-scooter while intoxicated and without a license. Finally, we have some entertainment news on a popular South Korean actor. And who are they dating? We'll take a look at what's been revealed so far. 
Okay, so let's get into those stories, starting with that concerning first story, which is uh, suspected to have, to have led to a death as well. Can you tell us more? Yes, so South Korea has confirmed its first case of a brain-eating umibia called Nagleria filiae. Now, the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, or KDCA, announced on Monday that a man in his 50s, who died last Wednesday, was found to be infected with the microbe. Now, the man entered the country on December 10th after staying in Thailand for four months. He started showing symptoms on the day of arrival and was transported to the emergency room the next day and then died 10 days later. Yes, this is actually an amoeba we have talked about on the show before, a couple mm. of years back, when a six-year-old boy in the U.S. state of Texas mm. died after he was infected with the uh, deadly microbe. Can you remind us about this amoeba and uh, tell us more about it? Yes, yeah, sure. So according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, Nagleria filiae is a free-living microscopic amoeba or single-celled living organism commonly found in freshwater and soil in places like lakes, rivers, and hot springs. Now, the amoeba usually infects people with contaminated water, and uh, when contaminated water enters the body through the nose, it then travels to the brain where it destroys brain tissue and causes a fatal infection called primary amoebic meningoencephalitis. Now, Nagleria filiae infections cannot be spread from one person to another. Okay, so it is uh, deadly, but thankfully it's not contagious. So then are infections of this microbe frequent? Uh, No, they are not, but most of the infections are fatal. The world's first case was reported in 1937 in the US state of Virginia. Through 2018, a total of 381 cases have been reported around the world. In Asia, cases have also been confirmed in Pakistan, India, China and Japan. Now, in regards to Thailand, a total of 17 cases have been reported in the past four decades. Now, the KDCA commissioner... Ji Yongmi asked those travelling to regions where Nagleria filiae cases have been reported to refrain from going swimming or engaging in water-based leisure activities. They are also advised to use clean water as part of preventative measures. Yes, so it does seem to be a freak occurrence that originated from overseas, uh, thankfully, and that there's no domestic outbreak of any kind, but I'm sure uh, the authorities will be on high alert just in case. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so police in Incheon's Yonsu district said Monday that they are investigating an 18-year-old female high school student on charges of driving an e-scooter under the influence without a licence. Now, the student is accused of causing a collision with a city bus while driving an e-scooter drunk in Yonsu district at around 10.49pm on Sunday. What was more troubling was the fact that two more people were on board this e-scooter at the time of the accident. Wow, so multiple infractions then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was anyone hurt in the collision? So fortunately, no one was seriously injured. One of the students, aged 17, who was on the scooter, was transported to a nearby hospital after suffering injuries to her face. The police found that the scooter driver had no licence and all three individuals on the vehicle weren't wearing helmets. The driver's blood alcohol level was high enough for her licence to be suspended if she had one. And it's also illegal for more than one person to be on a single scooter, right? Yeah, that's correct. According to revisions to the road traffic law that went into effect in May of last year. So under these revisions, only those who have a license for Class 2 motorised bicycles can use e-scooters. Take note that this license can only be acquired by those aged 16 or older. If you're caught riding an e-scooter without a license, you'll be slapped with a fine of 100,000 Korean won. That's around 78 US dollars. If you have a 
license but don't wear a helmet, you, you'll have to pay about $20,000 or $15 US dollars in fines. A $40,000 fine will be imposed if w- more than one person gets on one scooter. That's around $31. Right, so the high schooler will likely face all those fines at once, it seems. But uh, this case also encapsulates all the concerns that people have about e-scooters mm. at the moment in Korea. They are proving to be a useful alternative mode of transport, but only if they're used safely, of course. Mm. So it's a shame to hear of uh, stories like this. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our final story for the day, involving one of the hottest stars in the Korean entertainment industry currently in Every sense of that word. Can you tell us more? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. So one of the top trending entertainment news stories in the country is about the South Korean actor Song Chung-gi, who is said to be dating a non-celebrity British woman. Now, the actor's management agency, Hyjium Studio, confirmed on Monday that Song is dating and expressed hope that the public will regard the relationship with warmth. The agency's statement comes after a local media outlet reported earlier that that day that Song is dating a British woman who he was introduced to by one of his acquaintances. It is believed that they have been together for about a year. Okay, so wasn't he spotted with a woman when entering the nation from uh, Singapore earlier this month as well? Uh, Would this be his uh, new beau? So apparently so. Various media outlets had taken photos of the top actor and a foreign woman entering Incheon International Airport together on December 9th. Now, according to reports, Song was accompanied by his girlfriend at a media conference held in Singapore on December 7th for the drama Reborn Rich, in which Song plays the main character. It is said that they they then entered South Korea together. That show, Reborn Rich, that ended uh, just uh, yesterday, Mm. right? It fared quite well in the ratings. Yes, it did. So the show has emerged as the most popular TV drama in the second half of the year. Its viewership rating reached 26.9% on the last episode on Sunday after starting at 6.1% on November 18th. The local media outlet said many are wondering if the actor will seek to tie the knot for a second time as he has let those around him know about the new relationship and has introduced his girlfriend to friends. Now, Song previously married his descendants of the son co-star Song Hye-kyo in October 2017, but they called it quits some two years later in July 2019. Yes, that was a very high-profile relationship as well that caught the uh, imagination of K-drama fans, which Mm. unfortunately did not work out. Uh, The agency has asked outlets to refrain from publishing any speculative or unconfirmed reports, but uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interest (laughs) anyway now that the report's have been confirmed. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time now for Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly dive into the world of Korean sports. And joining me on the line now for that is our trusted contributor, sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yonap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. It's uh, great to talk to you as always. Yeah, it's great to be here too. Now, Ji-ho, it is the final week of 2022. The year is almost over. So today, we are taking a look back on the year that was in Korean sports because it's been quite a year, starting with the Winter Olympics and ending with the FIFA World Cup. It's been a a unique sporting calendar, to say the least. Let's start at the end with the World Cup, because that is probably the biggest sporting story in Korea this year. Korea beat some steep odds uh, to reach the round of 16 at the World Cup in Qatar, the country's first trip to the knockout stages in 12 years. 
Captain Sonningmin led the team while playing through a facial injury. And though he struggled at times, he came through with a bit of magic when it mattered the most. So, Jiho, can you walk us through their campaign? Yeah, sure. It was a memorable tournament for Team Korea, for sure. Uh, they started out with a goalless draw against Uruguay and then a 3-2 loss to Ghana in Group H. So they faced heavily favoured Portugal in a must-win situation for their final group match. And Korea also needed Uruguay to defeat Ghana. So a lot of the things, a lot of things had to go right in Korean's Korean favor, but stars aligned perfectly for the team as they rarely passed Portugal two to one, uh, thanks to a stoppage time goal by substitute Hwang Hee Chan, which was set up by Sonung Min. Mm. And also Uruguay defeated uh, Ghana just by two nil, really helping Korea's cause there because that score allowed Korea to advance on a tiebreak on goals scored. But one more goal by Uruguay in that match, and then Korea would have been actually knocked out of the group stage on goal difference tiebreakers. Mm. So, again, uh, stars aligning just perfectly for Korea as they advanced to the round of 16. Unfortunately, Korea lost to Brazil 4-1, to two bar out of the tournament right there. But the, uh, the underdog story really inspired the supporters back home and they received a hero's welcome earlier this month. Uh, Son Heung-min uh, captained this team wearing a, a black protective mask for his uh, surgical repair face. Uh, he had suffered multiple fractures around his left eye in a collision with another player early November, had surgery, and exactly three weeks after the surgery, he was on the field to play Uruguay. Uh, as, as I said earlier, he assisted on Huang Yichang's dramatic goal against Portugal. Uh, played all four matches. Pretty courageous performance performance for the captain. Indeed. It's been a few weeks now since their exploits in Qatar. But looking back now, Jiho, how significant do you think Korea's performance was? And what do you think perhaps it signals for the future of Korean football? Uh, while head coach Paolo Benta has left the team now, he mm-hmm. has uh, ingrained a more, I would say, perhaps technical style of football. But what do you think? Yeah, it was... You know, the, the fact that Korea went up against these teams and really didn't back down. Uh, you know, the one match really that sticks out for me was one against Uruguay, where, you know, Korea could have been forgiven for maybe trying to sit back, look for counter, counter-attack opportunities, but they really stuck to their guns and really kept playing the same way they had been playing for four years on the uh, Same story against Brazil. Uh, ended up in a 4-1 loss, but, uh, you know, they, they, they just play their own style of football. And I guess the the hope is whoever comes in as the next head coach uh, will have the similar kind of sort of stability structure within the national team. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens uh, in the next World Cup and the qualifying phase and everything because there's some really good pieces in place. Uh, players like Togyu Song, who scored twice against Ghana, he's mid-20s. Lee Gang-in, the super sub, he's what, still 21, 22. Uh, there's a lot of young, talented players in the mix who will be hitting their prime in four years' time for the next World Cup. So mm-hmm. uh, the ingredients are there. I think uh, you know somebody, whoever comes in, just has to find the right mix to make things work once again.
Sure, we'll see who the KFA do pick to be Bento's successor uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, meanwhile, Solomon, he had a memorable year personally as well in the Premier League. He became the first Asian player to win the Golden Boot, sharing the scoring title with Mohamed Salah for the 2021-22 season with 23 goals in all. So, Gio, this was a crowning achievement for the Tottenham Hotspur star, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, he scored twice in the season's final match against Norwich City. Uh, made a history with the Golden Boot. Uh, you could see the teammates trying to find him uh, at every opportunity, <laughs> trying to get him those goals to make sure he would win the Golden Boot. Mm. And uh, this is a combination of his evolution into one of the most uh, dangerous offensive players in international football. Really had some solid scoring seasons, seasons in the recent past, but this is a really uh, a breakthrough campaign for Son Heung-min. Uh, he's not been as dominant in the early weeks of this ongoing season. Uh, you know, we touched up on the injury that he suffered earlier in the Champions League play, but hopefully this World Cup uh, performance will have re-energized him for the rest of the Premier League season. Sure, it was great to see him uh, make a mark for the national team as well this year. Okay, let's uh, leave the football there and move on now to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. It feels like. A long time ago now, but it was the mm-hmm. other uh, major international sporting competition of 2022. Uh, South Korea won nine medals in all, and all of them came from either short track or long track speed skating. Short trackers combined for two gold and three silver medals. Uh, there was some officiating controversy in the early races, though, that threatened to uh, dampen Korea's hopes. But uh, Jiho, uh, the skaters shot in the end. Yeah, you know, they some of the Korean skaters were disqualified from the heats or semifinals for some dubious interference calls, but uh, they overcame these these distractions to lead all countries with five total medals. And Hwang Dae-hun, and one of those skaters who was at the center of officiating controversy early, captured Korea's very first gold medal in Beijing in the men's 1500 meters, and Chae Min-jung on the women's side defending her gold medal in the 1500 meters also picking up silver in the 1,000 and uh, silver in the 3,000-meter relay. Uh, the men's relay team in the 5,000 meters grabbed the silver medal as well, with veteran Kwak uh, gi earning his first medal in 12 years. Uh, speed skating, the long track version, uh, had the two silver and two bronze medals. Uh, youngsters like Kim Min-suk and Chung Jae-won reaching the podium in the 1,500 meters and, on the, and the mess start. Chai Min-gyu winning his second straight silver medal in the 500 meters and veteran Lee Seung-hoon with the bronze and the mess stars for his sixth Olympic medal. Uh, you know, back in Pyeongchang in 2018, Korea had won medals in different sports, many different sports indeed. Skeleton, bobsleigh, curling, snowboarding, a very encouraging development there, winning medals from different sports. But uh, uh, was, Korea was not able to recapture the magic in Beijing uh, this year. Sure, it was uh, disappointing that Team Korea were not able to Uh, better carry on the Pyeongchang legacy. But we'll see how Mm -hmm. Team Korea fares in a little over three years uh, now for the Milano Cortina Olympics. Finally, let's look at domestic sports leagues, starting with uh, baseball. The SSG Landers uh, accomplished a historic feat in winning the Korean Series title in the KBO League. They also made history by spending the entire regular season in first place and then uh, knocked off the pesky Cume heroes for their first Korean Series championship under new ownership. So it's been a steep rise for the Landers, Jiho. 
Yeah, it has indeed. Uh, you know, SK Wyverns became SSG Landers before the start of the 2021 season. And then year two, they went wire to wire to win the regular season crown and then finished off the Heroes in six games in the Korean series. So they are the first team in KBO history to stay in first place the entire regular season. Uh, they won game five of the Korean series on the ninth inning, pinch hit home run by Kim Gang Min, and they won the next game at home to close out the victory of the series. Their franchise icon, Kim Gwanghyun, came back from uh, pitching two years with the St. Louis Cardinals in the majors, had a very strong season. Uh, their lineup had some good production from up and down. Uh, Chu Shin Su, the former Major League All-Star, who signed with the Landers before 2021, won his first championship, championship ring uh, at age 40. He's coming back for another go. Uh, so they're going to try to win another one uh, for Chu and a couple of other veterans as well in 2023. Sure, it's going to be hard to top, but we'll see how they fare uh, once the KBO season starts uh, in April. In uh, K-League football now, Ulsan Hyundai FC ended their title drought at 17 years. They fended off rivals Chonbuk Hyundai Motors after coming agonisingly short against them for the past three seasons. This was the year they finally got that monkey off their back, Jiho. Yeah, agonising indeed. Uh, I mean, this year, the points total, final points tally, 76 to 73 in favour of Ulsan. Of course, the last couple of years, they came back, you know, they fell by one, maybe one point or that. They were tied in points but lost out in the, the tiebreaker. Uh, all different different uh, situations where they lost out on the title at the, at the last minute. But this time, they got the job done. Uh, Wilson defeated Chumbuk 2-1 in their final meeting of the season on October 8th. And then they clinched the championship with a dramatic 2-1 win over Kangwon FC uh, the very next week in their penultimate match of the season. Uh, Captain Lee Chung-yong was voted the league MVP. Uh, he, he did not put up big numbers, but he brought a lot of intangibles, intangibles to the table, leaving this team over the hump, uh, winning their first title for the first, their first title since 2005. And uh, at the other end, Chumbuk's run of five consecutive titles came to an end. And uh, these two teams expected to duke it out for the title once again in 2023. Indeed. Right, Jiho, thank you for that whirlwind wrap-up of the year. I think uh, perhaps next year is going to be a bit quieter with uh, no Olympics and no major men's football competition. There is, of course, the Women's Football World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, uh, and the World Baseball Classic is returning. The postponed Asian Games are still scheduled to take place, so there will be plenty for us to still sink our teeth into. We'll perhaps uh, talk about that next time. But for today... That's all for our roundup, Gio. As ever, we always appreciate your updates and analysis each week. We hope you have a great end of the year, and we look forward to talking to you again in the new year. Sure. Well, thanks for having me all here, and a happy new year to you guys. I am pianist William Yoon. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time for us to close out our show now with a morning edition preview where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor Richard Larkin is back with us again. Richard, Hello, it's good to see you. I hope you had a good Christmas. I hope you do too. I had a good Christmas. Yes, it is great to have you back. So, 
What do you have for us first today? Well, it's about an exhibition that is being held at Songun Art Space in Gangnam, Seoul. Park Yuna's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald tells us more about the 20 artists that are showing their works. And there is a reason why the artists were specifically chosen. Okay, so what is that reason? Well, it's because they are all shortlisted for the grand prize of the 22nd edition of the Songun Art Award. Mm. For those who may not know, it is one of the country's most prestigious art awards. It was established in 1989 by the Songun Art and Cultural Foundation. And the foundation's goal is to support the artistic practices of emerging Korean artists and show works by established international artists. This year, out of 503 applicants, the foundation selected 20 candidates to be added to the shortlist. Okay, so what types of works can we see in this exhibition then? What type of works did these artists produce? Well, according to the article, there are a variety of works like paintings, sculptures and digital art pieces. For anyone interested in going, the exhibition will run until February 18th. As for finding out who will win the grand prize, that won't be announced until January. The winner will be awarded around 15,000 US dollars and will be granted a solo exhibition. Yes, it'll be interesting to see who wins and perhaps our arts explorer, Anjou, can tell us more about them for uh, Explore Career sometime next year. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be an interesting one. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? It's about the actor Ju Ji-hoon, who many will know from the Along With The Gods movies and the hit zombie series Kingdom. Mm. Kwak Yun-soo's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times explains why the actor decided to choose a mid-budget movie for his next role instead of aiming for another major franchise. Okay, so what was his reason then for taking on a role in a movie that uh, most likely has a lower budget compared to his Mm. previous works? It could be seen as a bit of a step down for some people. It could, but the actor said during the interview that theatres still need mid-budget movies because they allow for a wider range of themes and genres to get explored. Mm. He added that he will take on a role as long as the film has its own charm and it has an interesting concept. His latest project is a crime comedy film called Gentleman, He plays a private detective who is falsely accused of kidnapping his client. He disguises himself as a prosecutor to chase down the mastermind behind the crime. And the movie will hit local theatres on Wednesday. Well, it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, movie he has been involved in then. So I understand he also said something about uh, the way he chooses his films. That's quite interesting. He did. I didn't know this. He does not like look like this, but the actor is 40 years old. <laughs> so now he asks advice from his staff who are in their 20s when choosing roles. This is because he doesn't know what genres of movies young people like to watch the most. <laughs> but he also, he mainly wants to make films that he would like to see as well, though. So he has a, to find a good mix. Yes, okay. So for more on this, uh, check out tomorrow's Career Times. That's where we're going to wrap it up to for today's uh, morning edition preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. And we wrap up our show there. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so do join us again then for more news, views, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.